Well, good evening, Hellos Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to start a new series with you tonight, and a new series where we're going to be focusing on the church. Now, the big idea of this series is quite simple, and we're going to be unpacking it in a myriad of ways over the next several weeks in, in, this, in this study, and that is that the church is where God's grace is made visible to the watching world. The church is where God's grace is made visible to the watching world. Now, as a church, we believe in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. We believe the gospel is to be spoken. That's why we say it a lot in our family of faith. But we also believe in the visible proclamation of the gospel. We believe the gospel is to be seen. This is why we want to live it out in our worship and in our service of Jesus together. In John chapter 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he would no longer be physically present with them. And he knew that once he left, his disciples would remain and they would be given the task of gospel proclamation throughout the world. And so he's prepping them for how to do that, both verbally and visibly. And he comes to this moment in John chapter 13 where he shares these words with his disciples. He says there, he says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I want you to think about the makeup of the disciples at that point in time. That group of disciples who first heard Jesus' words, there were two men present among them who would have never associated with each other, much less loved each other if not for their shared faith in Jesus. One man among them was named Simon, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 15, Simon is described as the zealot. Now, zealots in the first century were Jewish nationalists. They sought to overthrow Roman occupation and the Roman oppression of the Jewish people in the promised land, and they schemed and they strategized to do just that. And they hated anyone who willingly submitted to Roman rule and to Roman oppression. Well, there was one group of men amongst the Jews who did just that. Those were the tax collectors. You see, tax collectors in that day were employed by Rome. And because they had the support of Rome, Rome had their back and they were, their practices on the ground were not locally regulated. And because of that, these tax collectors could exploit people. They could intimidate people. They could collect more taxes than what was necessary just to fatten their own profits. They were kind of like the mob of the first century. This is why when you're reading through the gospel narratives, you oftentimes see the word sinners and tax collectors coupled together because they were viewed in that kind of way. And so the zealots hated tax collectors because tax collectors were, represented everything they despised about the first century. They were viewed as traitors. And so Simon and Matthew were mortal enemies. They could not stand each other, much like Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. They just did not get along or agreed about anything. Yet, yet think about it. Jesus had the audacity to call these two people to follow him at the same time and in the same space. Jesus called this tax collector and this zealot to follow him together. And he did that because with the formation of his disciples, he was creating a new society. He was forming a new community that would be utterly distinct from any other community on the planet. 
that the world would be able to look at this community and see in the company of called out ones visible evidences of God's redeeming grace. In their community, what Jesus was doing with the, the disciples would later erupt into the church in the book of Acts. And the church then would become the place, the people where God's grace is made visible to the watching world. The church is where the difference Jesus makes in all of our lives is fleshed out and it begins to surface. Now, I know it is common for people, even Christians today in our culture, to question the significance of the church. And I know that the quest questioning the significance of the church, sometimes those questions arise from understandable sources. Perhaps they're raised by those who've been hurt by the church. Or perhaps they're raised by those whose involvement with the church has been less life-giving to them than their involvement in other subcultures and other pockets of community. Rock climbing, for example, they, they get more out of that than they get out of the church. And so for many, the church is viewed as an irrelevant, outdated institution. I know, I know that's what people think and what people believe about the church. Now, many people, many people who fall in, many Christians, for example, who have fallen out of love with the church, sometimes they do so because the church has been unfaithful. Sometimes it's the church's fault for why people fall out of love with the church. But then at the same time, sometimes the reason people fall out of love with the church is because they are addicted to a hyper-individualistic approach to Christianity a hyper-individualistic approach to Christianity that is more reflective of the American culture than it is the biblical culture. It's more reflective of the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. Sometimes that's the reason. Now imagine if Simon and Matthew were present, if they were Christians living among us today in our culture and in our context. Now those two men could easily, could easily avoid learning how to love each other. They could easily avoid that. I mean, let's face it, it's easier to love people in general than it is to love a person in particular. This is another reason why I think Christians love the idea of the universal church, and they're less enthused about the local church, because when the church is an abstraction, it's really easy to love people in general. But when the church is contextual, when the church is local, when it is tangible, visible, touchable, that's where your ability to love another human being is challenged. So you can imagine Simon waking up one Sunday and thinking, you know, I've got the Holy Spirit and I love Jesus. I have friends who I've self-selected. I don't really need what a local church has to offer. I have the internet so I can download sermons and listen to things online. I can Spotify a worship playlist after sleeping in on Sundays and doing my thing on Sundays to, to sing songs by myself in the shower. Plus, I, I won't have to bother with traffic or parking in a city like Seattle, and I won't have to sweat, you know? Why, why should I sweat getting kids out of bed and dressed and out the door and just to make it to a worship service or a worship gathering on time? And then after doing all of that, after putting all that effort into going to a gathering and then when I have all these other options I could select from, after doing all that, what if I bumped into Matthew? What if I bumped into Matthew? You know, I'm still having a hard time with that guy. He grades me the wrong way. But what if bumping into Matthew is the whole point? What if bumping into Matthew is the whole point? You know, Jesus died, did not, he died not just for a person, he died for a people. 
He died not just for an individual. He died for a community. Eternal life is a shared life, and Jesus is a shared Savior in the church. We share him together. You know, the term translated church in the New Testament is this term, ecclesia, and that word is never used in reference to a place because church isn't necessarily a place that you go to. It is always used in reference to a people that the church is a collection of called out ones. It's the company of the redeemed who've experienced the grace of God and they form a distinct people together. And they find unity in the midst of their diversity. They, they love one another despite all the particular reasons why it's hard to love each other. And the vast majority of times that word shows up in our Bibles, understand that it is a reference to a local, tangible, visible, touchable church. Rarely is it used in reference to the universal church. Ecclesia is something tangible. Ecclesia is not an abstraction. You know, I've shared Heather King's story with you before, and I can't help but share it with you again. Heather King is a writer and commentator for NPR, and she met Jesus after a long life of not knowing Jesus, and she found herself in, immersed in alcoholism and various things, and then Jesus met her, saved her, and when that happened, she assumed, okay, now I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to go to church. And so she just instinctively did what she thought she was supposed to do. So she goes to church, she gets involved in a church, and, and then she begins to reflect on her experience, and listen to what she says about, about that whole ordeal. <laughs> she says that my first impulse was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober, <laughs> or in the case of the church, worship with these nutcases. <laughs> or boring people, or people with a different politics, taste in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people people who are broken, misguided, wishy washy, out for themselves, people who are, well, like us. But then she writes, you know, we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in, in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. See, a local church is a strange and perplexing mix of people. And it is that strange and perplexing mix of people where that's the context through which God makes his grace visible. That's the context through which God makes his grace visible to the watching world. And so in light of that, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Ephesians. If you have not done so already, we're going to journey through this book together because you will be hard-pressed You'll be hard-pressed to find a more sublime and inspiring description of the church outside of this letter. Anywhere else in Scripture, this is where it is. Because this little letter, it magnifies the centrality of the church and the eternal purposes of God. It highlights the glory of who God designed and created the church to be. Now, one of our priorities for 2019 is to fall in love with being the church all over again. And if that's going to happen, then we have to recapture God's vision for his people, God's vision for his church. And my prayer is that the church would be, 
relocated from the periphery or the margins of our Christianity. The periphery or the margins of our Christian life that the church would be relocated to the central functioning part of it. After all, can you really find life in Christ if you don't find life in his body? Are you really loving Jesus if you're not committed to his bride? I guarantee you Jesus is with his bride. You want to hang with him, you're going to hang with his bride. That's who Jesus has a concentrated amount of affection upon in this world. And I say that knowing good and well that the church is not perfect. That may be the most obvious and less most uncontroversial statement I've ever made teaching and preaching the Bible. That the church is not perfect. But some of you are too hung up on her imperfections. Some of you are way too hung up on the church's imperfections. And what you need is to take a journey through Ephesians with us so that you can hear afresh what God declares about his church, that you can hear it anew. And I pray that it would grip your heart once again so that you and us all together would fall in love with being the church again. You know, one of my heroes of the faith was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a former medical doctor who met Jesus and soon became a pastor. He served the Westminster Chapel in London, England for almost 30 years, and, and he taught through the book of Ephesians. It was one of his favorite books, and he actually took eight years to journey through this little book. Now, we're not going to move at that pace. We're not going to take eight years to go through Ephesians, but we are going to take his purpose. And he says something about the purpose of Ephesians, the theme of Ephesians that I want to put before you. This is what he says. He says, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God, and to enable us to see our true, and I would add, our shared relationship with him. And he says, that's the great theme of this epistle. That's the, that's the great purpose of Ephesians. And so let's dive in. We're going to look at the first couple of verses of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1. We pick up reading right off the bat, Paul. Okay, stop right there. Actually, it may take eight years if we just kind of move at this rate. But you need to know who this guy is. This is a guy whose life was turned upside down and inside out by the grace of God. This is a guy who, before meeting Jesus, he was lost in his religion. He was an ambitious Pharisee seeking to climb the social ranks of the religious establishment of his day. He despised Jesus. He despised the church. He was a man whose life wasn't consumed by the grace of God. It was consumed by his performance for God. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul takes a moment to summarize who he was in his BC days. That is his before Christ days. And listen to what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the, of, the eight, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding righteousness in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul had an unparalleled religious resume. So much so that in his zealous attempts to serve God, he persecuted the church. He oversaw the execution of Christians. In Acts chapter 7, we find Paul present when the first martyr, a guy by the name of Stephen, is stoned to death for bearing witness to Jesus. And right after Stephen is stoned to death, 
We read this in Acts chapter 8. It says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, who is, all, who is Paul, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. And he would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And soon after this, he goes to the higher-ups in his religious order, and he asks for permission to travel throughout the region and visit synagogues. And if he finds any people there worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, he wanted the backing and the support of them to take them out, to imprison them, to drag them out and ravage them. Well, they approved of his desire. They said, go ahead. And so Paul, Saul began to travel through the area doing just that. But God in his grace had a different plan for him. And as Saul is traveling to Damascus, Jesus showed up in his life. He appeared to him. And Jesus turned his life upside down, flipped the script on his ambitions. He called Saul to become an apostle to the Gentiles. He said, look, you're no longer going to persecute my church. You're going to serve my church. And here's where we begin to see how grace meets us in the context of our lives. God's grace meets us in the context of our rebellion. It meets us in the context of our unique forms of rebellion. It meets us there in the thick of it, in the midst of it, to rescue us from it. And all of us rebel against God. We don't rebel in the same ways, but we all rebel against God. And, and chances are, the form that your rebellion takes, it could, be, it could fall into one of two categories. We may rebel by being very self-righteous with our lives. But at the same time, we may rebel by being very self-indulgent in our lives. We may rebel like Simon the Zealot, or we may rebel like Matthew the tax collector. We may rebel like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal sons, or we may rebel like the older brother in that story. We can rebel by becoming very, very religious and trusting in our efforts. That's called self-righteousness. Or we can rebel by being very, very irreligious and self-indulgent and disregarding grace and disregarding the whole idea of salvation being needed. But the beauty of God's grace, that God's grace can redeem us from any form our rebellion takes. That God's grace breaks into the context of our rebellion to rescue us from it. it he calls us into the company of his redeemed so that we come together to worship God and to celebrate the grace that he's given each of us and the distinct forms of rebellion he has rescued us from. You know, Paul never got over the fact that Jesus intercepted him when he was en route to persecute the church. He never got over his own salvation. So a lot of times he'll tell the story in the letters he's writing to the churches in the New Testament, and it seems as though at times he's schizophrenic because he'll just kind of burst out, or not schizophrenic, it seems as though he's got Tourette's because he'll just, he'll be writing something and then he'll just bust out in worship and doxology. And some of the things he writes in his letters, you're like, where did that come from? You weren't even talking about, you know, Jesus being the eternal king and glorifying and then just kind of explodes out of him because he was a man who never got over the grace that God showed him in rescuing him. I'll give you an example in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those 
an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then here's where his Tourette's just kind of goes off. He says, okay, now to him, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He begins to worship in that moment, just kind of explodes out of him. And if God can rescue a rebel like Paul, then he can rescue anyone See, Paul was the first century equivalent of a radical religious extremist. And those types of people aren't easily swayed or persuaded into any other direction. They're so entrenched in their self-righteousness that they cannot be plucked out apart from the grace of God. That's what Paul experienced. So he says, if he can get me, he can get you. If he can rescue me, he can rescue me. God's, you, he, God's grace meets us in the context of our varied forms of rebellion So that's who we meet right off the bat, Paul. But then he says this, he describes himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he begins to introduce himself in terms of how he serves Jesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And the reason why I think he introduces himself this way with this kind of reference is because ultimately he knows that we're going to serve whoever saves Everyone serves whoever saves. If you and I believe that we can save ourselves, then we're going to serve ourselves. If we can save ourselves, we're going to serve ourselves all the days of our lives. But Paul's a man who experienced salvation from Jesus. Jesus rescued him. And so what is he doing? He's responding, saying, now I'm serving Jesus. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will because we're going to serve whoever saves. It's not unlike it's why Azim stayed with Robin of Loxley. I love it if some of you get this reference. Now, that's a reference from uh, Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's the best version of that story. I encourage you to watch it if you haven't seen it yet. But the reason why Azim stays with Robin is because Robin stays with, uh, saves him. It's the reason why Chewbacca hung with Han, because Han rescued him. We serve who saves. We hang with who redeems and rescues And so Paul gives his life in serving Jesus because Jesus rescued him, saved him. And we're told that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. Now, you noticed as we read the book of Acts, Paul was referred to by another name in that passage. He was referred to as Saul. Now, sometimes it is said that this name change corresponds with his conversion to Christianity. And it is sometimes said, well, Jesus gave him a new name because to reflect his new life. And it sounds great in sermons. That's why preachers like to say it. Unfortunately, it's not true. It wasn't a name change on that basis. Saul was his Hebrew name. That's how the Hebrew folks in his Judaic roots and his Judaic heritage, that's how they knew him. Paul was his Greco-Roman name. And so if anything, his name, Paul, reflected God's call upon his life to take the gospel to unreached peoples, to take the gospel to non-Jewish peoples, And so Paul would travel the Greco-Roman world, making much of Jesus, planting churches among the peoples, and and that world would know him as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, note that word apostle. That word apostle is very important. Now, apostle has kind of two meanings. It is sometimes used in a non-technical sense. It's used in reference to kind of a sent one or an envoy. It could be used to describe what, who we refer to as missionaries, People who cross cultures to serve Jesus and to make Jesus known. They are serving in an apostolic capacity. That's where that language missionary kind of comes from. 
And there are members of our faith family who are doing this right now. Craig and Abby, many of you know, would fit that description. They've crossed cultures. They're serving overseas, seeking to engage an unreached people group with the gospel. They are far from home, and they are far from their, from their family. And that type of service, that type of ministry to Jesus is not easy. That type of service, that type of ministry will also be marked by suffering, and suffering can take many forms as people are striding in that direction. And I want to ask you tonight to be praying for Craig and Abby. As we learned yesterday that they lost, they, they, they lost their baby girl, Noel. We are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to bear the burdens of those who are burdened. And Craig and Abby are suffering terribly right now, overseas, far from home, far from their family. And as their faith family, we want to pray for them. We want to encourage them in whatever ways that we can. And so I want to ask you at this point to just join me in praying for Craig and Abby as they grieve the loss of their baby girl, Noel. It's Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not understand why things happen the way that they do. And when we cannot trace your hand, we know, God, that we can trust your heart. And so as Craig and Abby kind of walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we trust that you would shepherd them. We pray for you to have mercy, for you to give grace, for you to draw near and to comfort them in the ways that only, that only you can. We're asking for your grace to meet them where they are. And I pray for our faith family that we would join them in mourning, join them in weeping, join them in grieving, that God, we need you in this time. Craig and Abby need you in this time. And so we are praying for you to minister and to move in ways that only you can. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I encourage you to continue praying for Craig and Abby to encourage them if, as you have contact with, with them. So they're serving in an apostolic capacity. They're making Jesus known where he is not yet known. But then there's also a technical way that this word apostle is used in the New Testament. And this is the way that it is used in this, in this moment. The term apostle is used to describe the select few who met the risen Jesus and were commissioned by Jesus to make Jesus known and to establish the church. These are men like Paul and Peter and James and John, these apostles. They serve Jesus in a very unique way in the world, and so unique that these apostles are actually linked with the prophets of the Old Testament, because together, the apostles and the prophets, they bore definitive witness to Christ, and together, the prophets and the apostles would provide the foundation upon which the church would be built, including ours. And Paul would point this out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to what he says. 
He says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You see, the prophets kind of worked in this direction by preparing the world for for the coming of Christ. And then the apostles helped the world identify Christ. That the apostles helped us identify that the Christ was this, this guy Jesus from Nazareth. And then God would use the apostles to to help the church understand the meaning of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. The apostles were the ones that saying, hey, look, this Christ that the prophets foretold about and that prepped the world for, he's here, his name is Jesus. He looks like this, he lives like this, he acts like this, and they were pointing to Jesus being the Messiah. This is why in Acts chapter two, verse 42, when the church is birthed in a place called Jerusalem, what do you read there but that the church, the first group of Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and you and I do the exact same thing today. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which come to us in the form of the scriptures. You see, all the scripture that you have in the Bibles that are open in your laps right now, all those scriptures have been authorized by God's will that was at work in and through both prophets and apostles. Paul, for an instance, he was... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote 13 of the 27 books that are present in our New Testaments. And all the books in the New Testament, they come to us from an apostle or from an intimate associate of the apostles. Luke, for example, used to run with Paul. He would travel with Paul when Paul would make Jesus known where Jesus was not yet known. Mark hung with Peter, and so in his gospel, he's relaying Peter's witness to Jesus in that book. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but a compelling case has been made and can be made throughout the history of the church for Paul authorship, for Luke authorship, for a guy named Apollos who was also an intimate associate with the apostles. All the books in the New Testament carry the authority of apostolic witness, and they join the works of the prophets in the Old Testament, and together, that's what forms our Bible, so that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which comes practically to us through the scriptures. Now, we are a Jesus-loving, city-serving, Bible-teaching family of faith. We believe the Bible to be God's word written to us so that you and I might revel in the grace he's shown us in Jesus. We love the scriptures, and Because all the scriptures together tell us the story of Jesus, and it's the story of Jesus that that defines our stories, that sweep us up into who Jesus is calling us to be. There was a Hindu scholar who picked up on this as he read through the Bible, and he was in a conversation with a guy by the name of Leslie Newbegin, and this was what he said about the Bible. He said, you know, the Bible is not a book of religion. He said, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole creation, the whole of creation, and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as as a responsible actor in history. He says, that is, I find in the Bible meaning of reality as a whole. And I know that's deep. I know that's, that's a lot, but I want you to know that this guy is spot on. The Bible tells one unified story of how all of reality finds its telos, its goal, its purpose, its meaning in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul will tell us in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says there, you know, God made known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is what the Bible communicates. This is why we study the scriptures. We, we build our lives upon the scriptures because the scriptures remind us that everything finds its meaning, its purpose, and its goal in Christ Jesus. Now, you may be here tonight, and you're, maybe you're not on board with the Bible. Maybe you took some courses in college. You've read some blog posts. You've listened to some podcasts, and you've heard various theories and deconstructionist ideas about calling into question the reliability of the Bible, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And some of those ideas, they, they do sprout sometimes from a sincere inquiry into the topic. But sometimes not. Sometimes those ideas come from a less commendable place. Now, I believe that the external objective evidence for the reliability of Scripture is strong. But my observation, just my experience with people, is that such evidence rarely convinces anyone who has not yet experienced God's grace stepping into the context of their personal lives. In other words, a person with no faith in Jesus will have no faith in the scriptures either, regardless of how strong the evidence is. And as such evidence, it seems, is most useful in confirming what the Holy Spirit is testifying to within us, that, that the Bible is trustworthy, that as we read it, we're, we're sensing the presence of Christ coming into our lives, flowing into our lives through the words that we're reading there. That's what happens as Christians who grow in their faith. They interact with the Bible as a form of worship. And God speaks to them through the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit applauds the things that we're reading and applauds the things that we're learning from the scriptures. So if you're not yet a Christian and maybe you're not a Bible person, let me encourage you just to take some time to sit down with a Bible, nothing else, no podcast, no blog post, no professor's voice, just you and the scriptures. Open up one of the gospels and just simply ask, I want to meet Jesus. And then just take some time to read through the gospels and just see what happens. Just see what happens. So Paul here identifies himself as an apostle of Christ, but he also uses this phrase, by God's will. That's a big phrase too. God's will is rarely easy and it is not always exciting. Many times people assume that God's will will kind of is always kind of moves on the upswing. That God's will will always lead us into higher elevation of prosperity and various forms of material blessing. I see this a lot of time with television preachers and certain kinds of churches in our culture. I'll hear this said all the time. And sometimes I'll, I'll turn on TBN and I feel like I'm looking in on an alien civilization of which I'm not a part. At times I can't figure out what Bible they're reading because some voices on there will talk about God's will almost exclusively in terms of prosperity and material blessing. Yet Paul's story as it relates to God's will, it is an elephant in that room. That's why a lot of those voices, they hang out with obscure, obscure passages in the Old Testament. And they'll take half clauses and obscure images and they'll build theologies upon them. And they, they don't really dive into God's will in Paul's life. Because Paul is an elephant in that room. Paul's story reveals that God's will often involves adversity and suffering. After all, when he writes Ephesians, he says three times that, that he's writing from prison. He is suffering as he's writing these words. And when Jesus calls Paul to follow him, he tells him, he makes the statement that I'm going to show Paul 
how much he must suffer for my name. That suffering was included in his calling to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus did not say that because he had vengeance on the mind when it comes to Paul. He didn't say that because he was thinking, you know, Paul Paul persecuted my people. I'm going to punish him for it. That's not what's going on there. Now, Jesus tells Paul there that is because Jesus loves his people. And Jesus has people amongst all the peoples in the world. And he knows that we can't get the gospel to other people apart from suffering. You just can't get the gospel to all the peoples in the world without some form of suffering. So if you and I do not have a category for the suffering, for, for suffering in our understanding of God's will, we will not faithfully magnify and multiply the gospel through Seattle to the ends of the earth. You see, not only is God's grace made visible in the context of our rebellion, God's grace is made visible in the context of our suffering. As we suffer in accordance with God's will, not in abandonment of it. You want to know where the world sees God's grace right now. They see it in the faithful suffering of his people. They see it when disciples weep and wail, but they do not despair and wallow. They see it when Craig and Abby lose their baby on the mission field. And rather than shaking their fist in the face of God, declaring, why is this happening? We're trying to serve you, God. They humbly express this. And Craig wrote these words. He says, as you know, his plans do not always go the way we want, but they are the best. We trust Her two little shouts were praise to her Lord before she finished her purpose on this earth. How do you say that after losing your child? How do you bear witness to that in that moment? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from grace. It comes from this mysterious reality of the grace of God that is sufficient for us in the context of our sufferings. A grace that can hold us, to be, hold us up even when we cannot stand up ourselves. A grace that rallies around us in a supernatural, mysterious way to help these types of words, these words of faith and devotion to the Lord, of simple, childlike trust to flow out of our mouths. It comes from grace. God's grace is made visible in the context of our rebellion when he changes us, but God's grace is made visible in the context of our suffering as he sustains us. And as he carries us through. So after identifying himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he then turns his attention to those he is writing. And listen to what he says about the church. He says to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Now, I want you to pay attention to your Bibles at this, at this point. I want you to look at the page. And you may notice in your Bibles a superscript next to the word Ephesus. And it draws your attention to a note in the bottom of the page of your Bibles, most likely, that tell you that there are few ancient Greek manuscripts of this letter that omit that location, that don't say explicitly that this letter was written to a group of Christians at Ephesus. But there are many manuscripts that do include this as the target for this epistle. Now, I point that out to you this evening because some of you are nerds and you want to know this, but then others because... uh, you know that these are the types of things that our non-Christian neighbors get hung up on. These are the types of things that blog posts and professors can sometimes blow out of proportion. These are molehills that are often turned into mountains. 
and also share it with you because one of our core values is biblical fidelity. Since the Bible is God's word written, we want to be forthright in our study of it. We don't have to defend it. We don't have to apologize for it. This is an example of what's called a textual variant. And here's what that means. Since the printing press was not invented until the 15th century, biblical manuscripts were preserved and meticulously copied by scribes for every generation so that it would be passed down to every generation. It was written down by hand and passed on to others. And what's incredible about the process is that we now have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, 5,685 to be exact. No other ancient writing can compare with the quantity nor the quality of these documents. By comparison, we only have 49 copies of Aristotle's works and 643 of Homer's Iliad, all of which are dated hundreds of years later than our earliest copies of the New Testament. And those copies are incredibly preserved. So the English Bible that you're reading right now, understand that that Bible is the translation of our most reliable Greek manuscripts. Of all those manuscripts, they discover the, okay, what are the most reliable ones? And let's drive to the clearest understanding of what God's word is. And so that's why we have our English Bibles. But the cool thing about it is that painstaking scholarship and meticulous attention was given to that process And when they kind of compare all these manuscripts, 5,000 manuscripts, as scholars have read and reviewed and studied and examined them over the years, you know what they've discovered? They've discovered out of all those manuscripts, 99.5% of them are textually pure. That means that only 0.05% of inconsistency exists among those documents. That inconsistency is what we call a textual variant. And those variants make no significant impact on our understanding of the gospel. They do not affect any key Christian doctrines. Most textual variances, most textual variants are so minor that they are seldom worth mentioning. And I'll be honest, this is one of them, but alas, I mentioned it anyways. It doesn't really mean anything, so you're welcome. But most scholars do believe that the book of Ephesus was a letter written and intended to circulate among, between churches located throughout Asia Minor, that is, modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus was one of the flagship churches in one of the flagship cities of that region, and so it didn't take long for this letter to be associated with Ephesus, and so that's why it seems it was linked to that city. But more important than a church's place on a map More important than a church's place on a map is her position in Christ. And this is what what gospel-believing churches share in common. This is what gospel-believing people share in common, the phrase, in Christ. The fact that we are in Christ, that is far more important than our place on a map. And when you consider that phrase, in Christ, understand that that phrase is used about 216 times in the New Testament to describe what it means to be a Christian. It's ironic because the word Christian only shows up three times in all of the New Testament. And so rather than asking people, are you a Christian, it may be better to say, hey, are you in Christ? Because that's more true of what it means to be a Christian. That's more true of what it means to be a church. And as great as it is to live in a city like Seattle's, it is infinitely better to live in Christ. And what this means is, is that we have more meaningful commonalities with Christians in Bangladesh than we do with non-Christian cities in our city right now. It means we have more meaningful commonalities with Christians of a different race, of a different gender, of a different demographic than we do with non-Christians of our own right now. 
And so let me ask you, who do you more readily identify with? Do you readily identify with people of your own ilk or people of your own faith? You see, Christian unity and community takes place in Christ. This is why Matthew and Simon could follow Jesus together. This is why members of different genders and ethnicities and ages and any other demographic variable may worship and serve Jesus in the context of a local church. And this is how a local church makes God's grace visible to the watching world. Because in the church, they see different types of people coming together, delighting in each other in Christ. That's what we do in a local church. And when we love each other in this kind of way, the world takes notice. It's a remarkable thing that whatever label that once defined you and whatever label once separated you from each other outside of Christ, all of those labels have been discarded. So we are no longer defined by our gender. We are no longer defined by our ethnicity. We are no longer defined by our sexuality. We are defined as saints in Christ. Christ is our commonality. And we meet each other in him because in him we become our true selves. In him we find who we were created to be. And in Christ there is no room for racial, ethnic, or cultural contempt to be among us. Earthly categories of separation and labels have ceased to have any determining, defining value in our lives. We are now defined by our union in Christ And as we get further into the book of Ephesians, we're going to hear Paul driving this point home because he hopes, he labors in this letter for Jews and Gentiles to find unity in Christ. That's what he's driving for in this letter. And he knows that when they do, God's grace will show up. Or better yet, God's grace will show out to the watching watching world. In Christ, he says, that's where we are located, that's where we live. But then notice he also says that in Christ we are faithful saints. Now, faithful here does not, does not mean loyal. It means full of faith. It means that those who are in Christ are so because they believe in Jesus and they trust the gospel. And because of that, they are in Christ. And because they are in Christ, they are what? They are saints. They are holy. They are sacred people. And being a saint has nothing, nothing to do with how you live this life. Being a saint has everything to do with where you live this life. It's if you're living in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. And that might sound weird to you. And you know yourself better than anyone else, perhaps. And and you might think, well, there's no way I am a saint. If you are in Christ, that's exactly who you are. A saint is not a special class of Christian. We're not talking about spirit team six or anything weird like that. We're talking about ordinary, everyday Christians, anyone who's believing in Jesus. They are faithful saints in him. And it's true of everyone. From the moment you put your faith in Christ, every Christian then is a manifest miracle of God's grace. And you may look at each other across the room and think, well, I don't know about that guy. Or I don't know about that girl. But God looks at them in Christ and he says, saint. He says, holy. He says, sacred. That's who God sees them to be positionally. They are holy. They are in Christ. This is true of them. And I know that is a label that is far bigger than who we are in this moment. I know those clothes are too big for us to wear. It's not unlike when I gave my son Asher my baseball glove that I used in college. Now, Asher has big hands, but he's four years old. So his hands aren't that big. 
And he took this glove that I had given to him and wanted him to have, wanted him to find joy in. And I gave him this glove and he slid it on his hand. Not long after, it was apparent that it didn't fit his hand. And I'd try to toss him a ball and he would awkwardly try to catch it. It just didn't work in that moment because the glove was too big for him. Now, just because it was too big for him, does that mean I'm taking it away? I didn't take it back when he dropped the ball. I didn't take it back when he couldn't catch what I was throwing at him. I know that over time, he's going to grow into it. I know over time, his hand is going to get bigger, and he's going to fill out that glove. Well, when it comes to you being a saint in Christ Jesus, that reality of your position, over time, you're going to grow up into it. Over time, you are going to become more and more like Christ, and there's the gap between your position and your practice is going to shrink This is what it means to mature in Christ. This is what it means for everything to be reconciled in Christ. That includes you in very real, tangible, practical ways. You are going to grow up in this identity of being a saint. But then notice finally, he greets his readers. He turns the corner and he says to his readers, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Christ, this is the air we breathe. We breathe grace and peace. We are members of the family of God who follow Jesus. Now, in writing this letter, Paul is doing something very ordinary. He's taken an ordinary mode of communication, and he's infused it with extraordinary realities. Everybody wrote letters in the first century. Letter writing was quite common, and they all followed a very similar form. And Paul takes that ordinary, simple form when he's writing these letters to churches, They usually start with a greeting where the writer is introduced, and then they kind of the recipients are identified, just like here, and then there's usually some type of formal greeting. But notice that his greeting bears the poetry of our redemption. The language he uses in his greeting is remarkable, because in the common Greek greeting in letters, they would always use the word rejoice. And then in Jewish correspondence, they would use the language of peace. They would use the language of shalom. But if you notice what Paul is doing here, he's combining the Eastern and the Western worlds. He's bringing two different cultures together because in the church, different cultures come together. In the church, different types of people come together. And so so Paul brings these two worlds together, only he replaces the word rejoice with grace. And he says this ordinary mode mode of communication is now infused with the extraordinary power of the gospel. And he's talking about grace and peace. This is God's way. This is God's rhythm where God makes the glories of his grace visible by placing them into the ordinary lives of sinners like us. Ordinary people like us, God infuses us with rich grace and peace. And when those, that begins to transform us, it begins to shine out of us so that his grace shines in the context of our life together for the world to see and for the world to be affected by it. Paul would say something very similar in 2 Corinthians where he takes this idea of just ordinary, ordinary things being infused with extraordinary substance to make an impact on the watching world. He talks about the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what he says as we wind to a close. He says, now we have this treasure in clay jars that is the treasure of the gospel, gospel realities. We have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. 
We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body, that it may be depicted visible. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. In other words, when grace and peace flows to us and it begins to flow through us, it affects those around us so that more people are swept up into the worship and the service of Jesus. And gratitude begins to swell in the soul and begins to explode out of us. This is how we, why we worship. This is why when we look at grace and worship next week, we're going to see Paul going crazy in a doxology, worshiping the Lord because this is taking place. And it is this move of grace and peace coming to us and grace and peace flowing through us. It is this move. That, that's what we want. We want God's grace to be made visible in and through our church so that it extends to more and more people, causing thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to express our gratitude to God for the grace that he has shown us, whether it's in the grace that met us in the context of our rebellion or the grace that sustains us in the context of our sufferings, this grace and peace. We're going to take some time to express our gratitude to the Lord, and we're going to do it in two ways. One way is we're going to open up the table and you're going to go to the Lord's Supper and you're going to express your gratitude there. As you're given the bread and you're reminded of the body of Christ given for you, you're going to say, thanks be to God. As you dip it in the cup and you're told, hey, this is the blood of Christ, this symbolizes the blood of Christ that was shed for your sins to be forgiven, that you are now in Christ and you are holy and blameless and righteous, you're going to say, thanks be to God. You're going to go to the table with an attitude of gratitude. Oh, that's, oh, I hate that phrase. Sorry, I didn't mean to be cheesy. You're going to go to the table with, with gratitude flowing out of your soul because of this grace that God has given to you and that is flowing through you. And as, as we go to the table, we're also going to turn our attention and sing and celebrate the realities of grace through song. We're just going to worship together. We're going to revel in these realities over these next few moments. So let me invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to pray for us. The table is going to be open for anyone who is in Christ to make their way there. If you are not in Christ, we encourage you to believe the gospel, to step into Christ by faith. If you don't know how to do that or what that means, come see me, let me chat with you. Talk to one of your friends who you're sitting with who, who could answer some of the questions that you have about Christianity or whatever the case may be. I'm gonna pray for us. The table is open. We're gonna sing and celebrate and express our gratitude. Let's pray.